Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Off the Beat and Track podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. Today's episode, I sit down with former musician, um, author, uh, podcaster, um, art um, enthusiast and curator and just all-round um, creative powerhouse and lovely gent, um, Rob Diamond. I met Rob um, about three years ago when he just launched the Talk Art podcast with actor Russell Tovey and uh, and me and, and Scroob met up with him to, to chat about the podcast on uh, the pod bible pod and and then I, I, I sort of when i was sort of doing a bit of research about talk art i realized that um robert had a, a career as a musician and uh, and sort of had a a real deep dive into it and sort of fast forward a few years i thought you know i want to talk to rob about music and and he was gracious and he got up nice and early we recorded this one at nine o'clock in the morning and uh and you're in for a treat um i don't say this very often but this was um, one of my favourite episodes. Um, Rob answers the question so beautifully and has got such knowledge of music and uh, of all genres. And it's, you know, it's a lovely conversation, this one. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to you getting to hear it. And before we do jump on with that chat, a few thank yous. So I'd like to thank 76 for producing this. Uh, I'd like to thank Screw Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. Uh, and obviously, I want to thank you lot for listening because, yeah, it's really nice that I get to have these amazing conversations with these wonderful creative people. And uh, and then people listen to it and people drop me a message or people give us a follow or a like or a love or a share or a retweet. And it's it's really nice to know that if it's not, you know, lovely enough that I get to have these chats, it's even better to know that other people are enjoying them as well. So, so thanks loads. This podcast has has, has been such a a wonderful thing to do, and I've, you know, it's grown so incredibly over the last sort of few years. And you know, we're, we're four hundred episodes in, and and it's showing no signs of slowing down. And you know, I look back over the back catalogue, and and yeah, I literally just think, oh my god, how did I get to have them? conversations and every now and again i sort of scroll back through the uh the the, the timeline of episodes on itunes or whatever and i think oh god i forgot i've done that one. Oh my god i forgot i had her on and yeah it's been such a joy and you know i feel like i'm starting to sort of collect a real lovely body of work of of just you know lovely nice friendly chats with people about 
music and records and careers and life and creativity and it's yeah it's a real joy to uh, to be able to share that with you so thanks for supporting is what i'm saying um also if this is your first time listening uh welcome go check out that back catalogue 400 episodes you know there's there's a big stack of people that if you like rock bands you know you can hear me talking to foo fighters to motley Cruz, tommy lee through to you know producers and, and djs like darren emerson um fat boy slim paul oakenfold uh through to indie bands such as suede idols sleaford mods uh, amazing acting talent like Maxine Peak, Amanda Abington, Joe Hartley, Thomas Turgoose, Michael Smiley, um, and comedians Ed Gamble, James Acaster. The the the, the list goes on, and uh, yeah, there's there's bundles. Go and have a rummage in that archive and see what you can find and and have a little listen. Um, if that's not enough, you can get even more stuff over on the Patreon. Uh, really trying to sort of push that at the moment. It's um, it's an opportunity for for a dollar a month. What's that? Uh, works out about twenty p a week, and uh, and for that you get access to hundreds of radio shows. You can watch all the episodes. Um, you can get access to all sorts of playlists um, and episodes that have never been released. Just a, a whole big bundle of stuff over there. But obviously, at the at the root of it, you're supporting um, the the podcast and supporting the efforts of uh, of me and uh, and, and seventy six. Um, right, okay, that's me done with the the, the, the the telling you what you can get, and uh, but what you're going to get right now is a lovely podcast. Please enjoy Off the Beaten Track podcast with the delightful Rob Diamond. Right, I've got to take a quick break in this podcast because I've got some super exciting news. Off the Beaten Track podcast is proud to go into partnership with the Cacao Bar from Hotel Chocolat. That's right. The cacao bar is not a chocolate bar. It's all the best bits of a chocolate bar put into a really exciting new alcoholic range. That's right. Gin, vodka, and a beautiful range of cream liqueurs. So one of the big bonuses of this partnership is obviously I'm super thrilled to have Hotel Chocolat working with us, but they sent me a great big box of this stuff. And I'm telling you, it's amazing. Go and check it out www.hotelchocolat.com or over on the socials at Hotel Chocolat. But yeah, in the coming months, there's going to be opportunities for you to get involved with competitions with us, to win bottles of stuff. There's loads of exciting things coming soon and I can't be more happy to say that this podcast is in partnership with the Cacao Bar from Hotel Chocolat. All right, let's get back to the podcast. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Give me Stu Whipping. Okay, we are recording. Rob, how are you today? I'm very good. I'm slightly uh, frazzled. Um, it's been a crazy few weeks. Uh, Russell has just... I obviously do the podcast talk with Russell Tovey, and Russell's just gone to America for a while to make a new TV show. And... Um, we we just like had to pack in so much stuff before he left. Um, it's been a hilarious few weeks um, interviewing different people and um, yeah, as well as doing my normal job at the gallery in yeah. Margate. So it's been quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I'm looking forward to, to, to talking music with you because I know that music's been a very important part of your life. And, and so 
let's just let's just jump straight in and and i'm going to ask you please rob to tell me uh for track one the song that you regard as having the greatest ever intro please well when i was growing up uh i was really like into pop music mainly people like kylie minogue <laughs> uh, madonna prince it was all like super kind of mainstream pop like pwl era um and i grew up in maidenhead in berkshire and somebody i missed for the whole until i was about 13 was kate bush and i don't know how i missed her but i did and um i've been playing piano since i was four and obviously i became a kind of pop star at the age of like uh 20 probably but i've been doing it since i was 13 um uh in in a band called tempo shark and one of the reasons tempo shark even really happened was because of kate bush and uh a friend of mine used to give me these tape cassette uh, kind of mixtapes back in about 92. And it was on there that I first ever heard cloud busting and the amazing strings intro and like all of that stuff. But then what I did was because I didn't know her, I decided I was, I, I saw she had like 10 albums or something. So I decided I was going to like buy each one e- each kind of month and then like to spend the whole month listening to it. So I would, um, I bought like the kick inside and then I went to like Lionheart and I just kept moving on through the whole of her catalog. And it was when I got to, um, the dreaming i think and sat in your lap came on and that introduction is like so incredible just like the the drums like all the synths all the electronic kind of um programming that she was doing at the time and that that record remains still to this day to be like one of my favorite records ever it's just so eccentric and so kind of free and uh wild and uh kate bush then literally influenced everything i ever did like i she's still my number one i love her and and just you know talking about hearing Kate Bush for the first time like that's before you even see her and then when yeah. you get to sort of see the visuals that come with you know the, the package that is Kate Bush it's ridiculous there's so much more than just the music you know the, the, the I mean obviously it's rare that she ever plays but any performance you see whether it be Top of the Pops whether it be anything it was just yeah it's something to behold right yeah, and I remember when she did And So Is Love from the uh, Red Shoes album on Top of the Pops. Yeah. I think around a similar kind of time, maybe, that I just discovered her. It would have been and about remember, 92, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I just remember her being, like, so poised. And so it was, like, such a weird moment. And that was almost, like, quite traditional for her because it was more like her playing with a band. It wasn't like her doing dancing and yeah. crazy outfits or anything. But she just had this, like, m- magical quality about her. And so much kind of... Um, grace and it really stood out on the show i remember being like who is that like yeah. she's just sort of like otherworldly but then in the early 90s as well we didn't have the internet like we do now so you couldn't like <clears throat> easily sort of you know get access to the videos so i i had to go and find like an old vhs of like the whole story or something yeah. where it had all her music videos on and i would obsessively try and find everything i could um Uh, you know from like old videos old performances everything like i remember seeing army dreamers when she did her live versions of it you know on for tv on different tv shows like parkinson or whatever and um just being blown away by the theatricality of it but it was never naff it was never like a bit you know like sometimes it can be like campy or just um in a kind of bad way i mean obviously i love camp but like but you know what i mean when it gets a bit cringe and you're just sort of like oh this actually ruins the soul but with kate bush it never did it always elevated it and took it somewhere else and i think it's because her belief and she's so possessed in the idea of the story of each song that it's just so authentic and yeah she really is like no one else and i remember like 
when I was first setting up Tempo Shark, we were hanging out a lot in Brighton because Luke, who did the band with me, he was studying at Brighton <clears throat> and his flatmate was Tasha from Bat for Lashes. And I remember Kate being a big influence on her as well. Mm. And it was really interesting as she sort of went through all these different years, she was sort of experimenting herself. She was really inspired by Björk and PJ Harvey and Cat Power and all these people. But I always remember thinking like, it's really Kate Bush. Like and when she did songs like Daniel and like, that other one where she's riding the bike. Yeah. Uh, um, I love that video. Uh, uh, oh, God, what's that? It's not Laura, is it? That's... Um... No, that was later, I think. Um, <clears throat> what's a Girl to Do? Or what's a Girl no. to Do? That's it, is yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah. I can't remember. Anyway, uh, when she did that, that, that video, I remember just being like, wow, it's, she's really telling stories. And I think, I think Kate Bush was really able to set that up for people in a way, as well as like Bowie, and there obviously were other people, um, you know, doing it. But um, I think... Kate was very, very, very special for all of us. And I think it's like what, what you sort of touched upon there, where, where, you, where you mentioned that, you know, sometimes these things, these performances can kind of veer towards NAF sometimes, and they never did with Kate Bush. I recently have just gone back into Kate Bush, like, I guess, because a whole new generation have now got into Kate Bush due to running up there helping youth on stranger things and oh, of course yeah so, which i've missed actually i haven't seen stranger things yet i don't know how i've missed it I'm just working too hard <laughs> so i need to slow down and watch it <laughs> i can hit my my kids are singing kate bush and i'm like what's going on here and and so it's sort of reintroduced me to to to, to kate bush and i sort of had another deep dive again and i'm touching on what you said about sometimes you know that this performances can can veer towards being naff, but they never did. And I saw her on top of the pops doing Hands of Love, and and that's got to be what eighty six, eighty seven, maybe. Mm-hmm. It hasn't. That performance hasn't dated one bit. Yeah, it doesn't look like oh god. Like there's so many performances like from the eighties that you just think oh my god. Like how did they do that? Well, how did they get away with that? And and you you look at Kate Bush and it. Because I think, again, something you said, it was like she was from out of space. It's like she's from just a different universe. And I, I, I could sit and confuse about Kate Bush all day long with you, mate. Because... The funny thing is, though, when she actually does interviews, she's quite sort of um, down to earth and mm. ordinary in some ways. Like, yeah. you're almost like your sister or something. Like, you, you yeah. kind of would, would know her or a girl you went to school with. Like, and I always found that really confusing. Yeah. But I, I think also when you look back at a lot of 80s pop videos, the makeup, the hair, it was all so over the top. Mm. You know, um, but there were certain bands like Bowie or Kate where I think it was so artistic at its core and they were referencing so much um, kind of historical, um, kind of artistic influence that that somehow it is, it is timeless, you yeah. know, and it kind of transcends all of that. And I don't know, I just think Kate's so elegant. And I, I loved all the kind of Irish music influence, you know, folk music influence, the kind of music she'd grown up in the household listening to as a young girl and how that really went into her heart. And it, mm. it, she sort of had this real pride in the kind of craft of music as well. And, um, and then trying to, you know, become a songwriter as she did, you can hear really early on in those early songs, yeah. like on the kick inside, it's, she's just got this very unique talent. And yeah. um, I just love that she ended up doing all the mime stuff as well and like yeah. all the performance and like, I don't know, it's just, it's art really for me. And hundred um, percent. Yeah. I did see her live actually in Hammersmith Apollo uh, in, in London when she did that live tour. And I was in like, not the front section, but maybe like six rows back and there was an aisle in front. And at the beginning of the concert, she walked straight past us and like brushed my arm. And I was like, <laughs> I touched it, 
she was like, Kingfish has touched my arm. And then she um she opened the gig with um Lily, that song off oh. the Red Shoes. And it's still I sing it to myself all the time. Like if I'm walking down the street to work, because I live in Margate, very close to our gallery, Carl Friedman Gallery. And um I often walk down just going like Lily. <laughs> I just love it so much. That that one but live performance, just like, oh, I love her. Oh, I, I couldn't get tickets for that. Um, a mutual friend, Scroobius Pip, I'll do the the, the pop oh, yeah. Bible with Pip went and uh, he he took his mum and he said, "Yeah, it was, it was magical, absolutely magical." Because am I right in saying that there was no phones allowed? Was there? Yeah, there was nothing. You oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so and it good. was it was a quite um amdram as well. It was quite like being at school, bits of it, because she collaborated with her son. Yeah. But it it wasn't bad though. It was just a bit like some sort of theatrical production and <clears throat> her son came on and like performed, I think. And and there was moments where it was more traditional, like the beginning was just like a rock concert for maybe like six, seven songs, and then it turned into this kind of like school theatre performance. It was really insane but really brilliant because no one was doing that or you know and and she still pulls it off and that moment where you see her in the water there's like a film um of her with a um rubber ring around her because she's obviously the character's like fallen in the sea and it's that ninth wave whole kind of section and and then then it sort of turned into like almost like being in a film so it it was she must have really thought about all these different elements and different kind of uh methods that she wanted to involve so it's like rock concert you know theatrical kind of school production and then it went into like being in a film it was really intense and like had like helicopters and lights flashing and um it was really fantastic show wonderful wonderful um i'm gonna ask you for track two rob to tell me the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you please yeah so that was also um a similar era um in like 92 93 and my friend carla quelch who um, i used to do a lot of acting <laughs> um and she was one of my best mates and she was a bit older than me maybe like four years older than me or three years older than me and um she kind of always looked out for me i think she sensed i was quite a sensitive um kid and i was a slight loner in a way but i was also like very extrovert which i'm still a bit like now i'm kind of like super shy and then like very sort of attention seeking and out there and love love like socializing um and she would give me these tapes and on on the same cassette tape as the kate bush uh i heard silent all these years by tori amos and I don't even think Little Earthworks had come out yet. So it was just like she'd recorded it off like Radio 1 or something. And um, I'd never heard anything like it. And it was just like, it totally floored me because I'd grown up playing piano, like classical piano from the age of four. And um, I'd really wanted to write pop music. And I'd been trying since I was about seven, eight. And I used to write all these horrible kind of like pop poems that I would then like record on a tape cassette player of me singing with no instruments or anything. Um, very influenced by Prince. And I don't, I had, I wrote one called Love Machine. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't know what I was talking about, but I, w- I just sort of wanted to write pop and I love pop music. But then when I heard Tori's music, it was like something really different. And um, I would go to the piano and kind of try and play the um, the the kind of piano intro that she does on Silent all these years. And I sort of taught myself how to do it. And then that was literally how I began to write songs, um, almost like mimicking Tori Amos. And then <clears throat> strangely, then in 94, I still hadn't really written by then properly, but my, my, my brother sadly died. Um, uh, like out of the blue he went he went out on a Saturday night like I was sat in a lounge with him and then he was like I'm going out with my friends and then he never came home again he just he died in a nightclub so he took um the club drug uh ecstasy and at the time in the 90s it was like obviously everyone was taking it and um it was a sort of cultural phenomenon in a way and he'd been 
um, you know, just like any teenager, he was 17 and he was just like experimenting with his friends. Cool. He loved house music, loved dance music. So um, the day that he died, I actually went to the piano or the day after, I can't, yeah, maybe the day after, I went to the piano and I wrote my first song, which was based on a B-side of Tori Amos's called um, All the Girls Hate Her. And I called it All the Boys Hate Him because I was feeling quite like I was queer. <clears throat> I felt really like outside at school. I didn't really feel like I was part of... <clears throat> um, you know, uh, a friendship group, really. So I wrote this song called All the Boys Hate Him, but it was literally like using her song that I just like changed the lyrics to. And then from that day on, for the whole of my teenage years, I wrote a song every single day. Um, so I had like so many songs and I had all these like lyric books where I would, every day I would just write a song on each page. It was really strange. Yeah. And it became this kind of way of me surviving somehow. And it was really silent all these years. I have no idea why it spoke to me, but it spoke to me on like a deep core level. And when we started doing talker i kept saying to russ i really want to interview tori amos and he sort of likes her but he was like but why has that got anything to do with art but i was like you don't understand and we were meant to do it and then the pandemic happened she'd agreed oh, to do it and no. we were going to new york and we were she'd, she'd released a book i think That's about right. 2019 yeah. and she was touring and doing promotion so her, her label were like yeah she can do it but we still then it got cancelled so we haven't actually rescheduled it yet but i'm really keen to talk to her because i think partly why her music touched me was because she again was like someone that was very artistic yeah. and her record sleeves, they almost looked like artworks, like yeah. her on little earthquakes, you know, in that wooden box. It was and, and all the drawings on the back of like mushrooms that could be like penises or something. There was yeah. all these kind of like hidden messages and stuff within, within the artwork. And then when under the pink came out on cornflake girl, I mean, oh, that's an intro as well. I mean, for the first yeah. question, that's such a great intro. And when you hear that on the pop radio, it was like, what is this? It was, you know, and a lot of people compared her to Kate Bush, but actually I, I, did, I never thought she was like trying to be Kate Bush. I always felt like she was Tori Amos. You know, it's a yeah. very different thing. And that, that artwork for Under the Pink, the second album, is like a painting. You know, it's like an impressionist kind of artwork with all these kind of strange like science equipment kind of glass bottles around her and everything. And I just loved all of that era. So much so that when I was 18, my mum actually bought me a Tori Amos uh, photograph signed by Tori from her record label, um, like East West or something that they'd done when her first album came out, they'd made like an edition of 50 photos of her sitting on a chair in her denim jeans. It's like right at the beginning with her kind of like orange flame kind of red hair. And um, my mum bought it for me uh, as an 18 year old as kind of like, you know, it was like this really special present. And it really meant a lot to me at that point. Cause that was when I was making my first record. And yeah. I don't know, it's, it's interesting that even my mum had noticed, I think she found it in like a, what do you call it? Like a boot sale, you know, yeah. in someone's house. And he'd used to work for the record label. So he was just like downsizing and selling everything. Um, but that became almost like a talisman for me, that photo. I still got it now, actually. I love it. Oh, how wonderful. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do 
not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, Rob, if you hear that record now, and also then, what if you had to pinpoint the emotion, what was the emotion that you got from, from hearing that record? I think I felt quite alone as a kid and I was often in my own head, <clears throat> writing poetry, talking to myself. I used to like do fake interviews weirdly, which I didn't remember until we did talk. Art. It's like, I never would have thought I wanted to be a broadcaster. And then actually I've been doing it since I was like <laughs> I've four been years old. In my own head yeah, like, pretend years. interviewing <laughs> like pop stars or pretend in- interviewing myself as if I was a pop star. It was really hilarious. Um, but I, I think I always felt quite isolated and um, weirdly like quite rejected as well. And I think when I heard her music, it just felt like there was some sort of level it was on, like a resonance or some kind of frequency that I just tuned into. And it was really that sort of, I don't know, friendship through the music. And I remember thinking that that really kind of set up a template for my life because um, I then also discovered Frida Kahlo, the painter, weirdly through Madonna, the pop star, and um, Frida's story as well of like surviving through trauma. And when my brother died, I suddenly thought, hang on, this is tragic. This is awful. I don't want to be here anymore. But you have to hold on because I think art and music made me realize there was a reason to exist and that existing, you know, and surviving through pain and learning from it is actually like a strength rather than a weakness and um i think tori's music particularly like me and a gun and you know the experience of rape and the fact that she was trying to um then set up the uh the uh, rain charity in america which helps people who have suffered from um sexual violence or incest or you know different um things within the family home stuff like that i think i really felt a generosity of spirit within her music as well. And that she was making it for herself as like a cathartic thing maybe, or to like get through all her own kind of demons or whatever. But at the same time, she was doing it to help other people. And I always had this romantic idea that like, I wanted to write songs that could reach someone in a tiny town in Texas who might be feeling alone. And 
<clears throat> my first album was called The Invisible Line. And that was based on this idea of like Spinoza kind of theory. It's like philosopher. It's quite pretentious, actually. But um, <laughs> but I like this idea of like a red line or something that goes out invisibly around the world and that we're all connected. And I think that's what her music gave me. It was like a sense of like holding hands with me or something at a time when I felt the most isolated and probably quite like, not suicidal, because I don't think I'd ever have killed myself, but I was definitely like despairing in quite a dramatic way, probably. Um you know, um, as a queer teen. Um, and I remember even like, you know, like sitting in the bath the day after my brother died and just being like, what the fuck? Like he was the one who was meant to have kids. And like, what are my parents going to think? Like, I'm never going to have children. Cause back then, like the idea of a gay person having, um, children was like, so not happening. So I, from a really young age was like, I'm never going to be having children, you know, from the age of 11, 12 or something. And it was a real trauma for me. And I also had this real sadness of like, will I ever be able to tell my parents who I've fallen in love with? Will they ever meet the person, you know? And I thought they were going to like kick me out. They, they didn't at all. Luckily I had really generous, wonderful parents that supported me. But I think it was the music really that sort of becomes that ally and that, that friend for you. Um, and I don't know. I just, I just think I must've related to the, the energy that she was putting out i don't think anyone's ever answered that question quite so beautifully rob um <laughs> i'm going to ask you for track three um to tell me the song that reminds you of your time at school please okay i feel like this is all a bit on the same topic we're going back into my teens but um i the other week i i worked with tracy m in the artist and she's also one of my best mates and she got this white chapel art icon award the other day which is like a really big deal in the art world it's where you know when it's kind of a lifetime achievement award a bit like this is your life or something of the art world and um we went to the white chapel in london and tracy had been told by the white chapel that she could invite any band she wanted and i think if david bowie had been alive she probably would have invited him because they were mates but um that would have been iconic but she said i want to invite shirley manson from garbage and garbage because shirley had written her a letter um when her mother had died in 2008 i think and it was also the year that i met russell at the same exhibition that shirley had been to in edinburgh and i think shirley had walked into this exhibition seen this show and then wrote tracy a letter and said my mum's died but your show in a bit like what i was talking about with Tori Amos and Frida yeah. Kahlo, that's kind of what it meant for Shirley. It was like this real deep connection. So then Tracy started like listening to their music and loved the lyrics and then would kept talking to me about garbage. And I said to her, that's so weird. When I was, when I was like 13, 14, I used to be on the school bus and listening to garbage's first album. And there was a song called queer. And that song like meant so much to me just to hear it said out loud. And I don't even, I think Shirley's like, you know, a straight woman, but, but, that song and the way that she feels queer herself, like an outsider. And it sort of really resonated with me. And I used to sing it on the school bus. And there was one time when I was being bullied by somebody and, um, I, I started singing the song back at this guy and he actually punched me on the school bus, not in like a super violent way, you know, more as like a, you know, like boisterous kind of shut the fuck up kind of thing. Cause I was really annoying him going queer is that the queer to him, not really calling him queer, but I was almost saying like, I'm queer. You can fuck off. Cause I had a real, from the age of 14, I just thought if you're going to bully me, 
I don't give a fuck. Like, and I, I bleached my hair and of course I've got black hair and it went orange. So with sun in, I had like bright orange hair. It was horrible. <laughs> it looked really rank and it was really dry, like straw. Um, and everyone was like, why are you doing that to your hair? But I was so angry from my brother's death, from like feeling really outside and gay and everything. And I didn't want to be. But at the same time, I felt really confident within that. It was a really odd mix of like emotions, but it was through the music that I think I found strength. So when I met her at the Whitechapel, we were like hanging out out and we did pictures and stuff and I just said to her you don't understand like I only realized recently having chatted to Tracy how much you sort of saved my life like you kind of gave me armor to wear and I think that's such a generous thing as an artist whether you know whatever art you make whether it be because even the new tv show that's on um Netflix what's it called the one with the gay guys the two young kids I forgot what it's called oh, uh, um oh god uh, just come out recently yeah I know um, exactly what you mean. so i think that show and things like sex education and and shows like those shows i think they're so important because we had things like queer as folk in my in my sixth form um that went on channel four and obviously i was seeing that at the right age probably where it's like you're becoming a kind of um i'm just looking up on netflix oh god hang on i should like silence that um yeah but i, I want to see what that show is called it's really annoying anyway um yeah so I, I i think it's amazing the kind of strength you can gain from not just music but like all kinds of creative um you know outputs <clears throat> did you enjoy school heartstopper i just found it That's it's called heartstopper so um uh god i'm really proper name dropping now but um we in the same week as meeting Shirley or a week after Tracy took me to Elton John's fundraiser. Like for, you do. I know for his Elton John AIDS <laughs> foundation. And of course, Tracy knows him really well. So we were sat next to him on his table with like three other people. It was so surreal. It was like David Williams, Elton John, Tracy and me and, and, and his husband as well, David Furnish. It was hilarious. But uh, Elton said to me, have you seen Heartstopper? And he was saying, it's such an important show. And I just loved this idea that like, that's now out there for people, you know, that you can, and of course, Netflix has got all the anti-trans shit going on. And there's been a lot of kind of negative sides as well to what's going on. But I do think it's brilliant to give people this kind of um, space creatively where they can see themselves. And um, it's the same in the art world now, you know, like representation, like, um, you know, I think it's so important that people of color and um, queer people and all different, you know, w older women, like all kinds of different people are able to see themselves on the wall to be given space within those galleries. And since moving to Margate, that's what we've really tried to do is like almost like hand over the gallery in some way um, a few times a year to different people so that they can be seen and they can share the platform that we have. Um, anyway, yeah, but I just really liked Elton's kind of real enthusiasm for that show because I was just like it, it, it's it's really important that we make all these different kinds of programs and different kinds of records and support you know different people did we actually get to the song no what was it <laughs> oh queer yeah, oh, it yeah. was it was so, of course it was, it yeah, was, that queer. was it. yeah yeah we yeah. did we did we did yeah yeah and it's also it, it's not it, you know if you think of rock records like back then, I was also really into Alanis Morissette, who yeah. I think Garbage are touring with now. That's but, right. um, you know, G uh, Jagged Little Pill as well. I knew every single word. Do you know what I mean? But like when you hear that song Queer, it's got a real like jazzy kind of intro. It's like, mm. I don't even know how to describe that, but it's not, it's not like, you know, heavy rock guitars. And uh, there was something about that particular song that really stood out. Yeah, I think like so much of their other stuff was, was kind of a little bit more sort of angular and, and gnarly. And I think Queer's got that. It's almost got a kind of sort of trip hop 
sort of feel to it, hasn't it? It does, exactly. Right. Mm. Yeah. And I love Tricky. Yeah. And I loved um, you know, some of Massive Attack, but it was mainly like Bjork, Tricky, um, Talvin Singh, Guy Sigsworth. Um, All of this, 1991, 1992. This is yeah. such an, an amazing time for music. It's so yeah. easy just to go 1992, oh, Nirvana, Pearl Jam. But... There was so much more. Like you look at the, the impact that, that that Bjork was having, and you look at like you know what Polly Harvey was doing. It was like you know there was oh some incredible stuff happening in music. And and like you say, go to Bristol and look at Massive and look at Tricky and the stuff that was happening in and Portishead Even in that Tricky's scene. Project I'm Nearly God when mm. he collaborated with his mates. I think he couldn't put it under his name for some reason, but that record I loved. Like the one with um, Terry Hall, mm. um, poems and all those records. They're just amazing. And PJ Harvey. I mean when I first heard that demo album, you know, her four track demos, that super inspired me. That like just made me feel so free. Mm. And that like, um, lick my legs. I'm on fire, you know, like rid of me. And Oh my God. And the one about like Robert De Niro, that performance, did you, do you ever recall the performance in the Brits that, um, Polly Harvey and, um, Bjork, um, Bjork done satisfaction. Yeah, uh, I actually, I actually think I posted it recently on Instagram. Oh, did you? Oh, yeah, that's... maybe like six months ago because I was so blown away by it. Yeah, and even the cover that they did on Q Magazine with Tori and Amos, Tori, yeah, the three of them. She's got that and pink fluffy like, top on, hasn't she? Just love all of them. Yeah, and it was actually a really good time for women in music. Like mm. I was a big fan of bands like Echo Belly mm. and Sleeper and Elastica, and that was a whole other thing. Like there was a whole London scene, mm. and I used to, um, as a young like songwriter, I used to go to Camden, and my dad would like drive me all the way up to town and then drop me off from like Berkshire. It was quite a drive um, because they were like, I think my brother had died, and they were probably like worried about something happening to me or something. So he used to like drive me up and then wait in London and then pick me up at the end of the gigs, and I would go and like hang out with echo belly i i was so sociable that i would like w- talk my way in backstage and i became friends with deborah who was the bass player of echo belly yeah and she was in curve she, before that <clears throat> wasn't she yes mm. so we became friends when i was literally about 15 and then she left echo belly mm. and i stayed in touch with her and she was in a band called night nurse that's right and i used to go to like the garage in highbury islington and hang out with her and she was always so generous to me i actually really want to find her and reach out to her because she was such a big impact on me and you know the other person was um pauline black from the selector oh what a dude. um i mean you can already see my music taste is so like all over the place when you when i looked at these questions i was like i don't know how i'm going to explain like <laughs> i love music so much and i love all kinds of music but pauline black um I got discovered uh, through the National Youth Music Theatre. They did these kind of like summer courses. And I went on one of those. And one of the mentors on it was the wife of the drummer of Dire Straits. He was called Pick Withers. And Linda kind of saw my songwriting talent age 14 and was like, you have to come start staying with us. We're going to introduce you to people. And she kind of really helped make my early kind of songwriting career happen. And also just sort of like put me in in front of a piano in front of 20 people and would be like sing <laughs> and I just have to sing um but she took me to all of Pauline's shows because they were best mates and um and also with Trevor Laird who's an actor and he was in Qu- yeah, uh, Quadrophenia. Quadrophenia yeah so he used to come with us and I'd, I'd watch her and she, I'd never seen anything like it I'd also never heard anything like it because I'd grown up on like pop music and the selector had such a massive impact on my life and Pauline Black actually gave the Turner Prize last year um, when Russell was the judge and I was like I can't believe I'm not there. <laughs> but I did get to meet her a year ago and just tell her, like, thank you. Because she's another person that I just loved watching her. You know, she used to, like, jump up and down and, like, oh, there's no one like her. Yeah. She totally changed music forever, really. Wonderful. 
I'm going to ask you for track four, please, Rob, to tell me the first song you remember buying from a record shop. So this is really embarrassing, but um, do you remember like Boots uh, on the high street? They used to sell yep. records and um, they had Pepsi and Shirley. And I was, I think I must've been into Wham, like George Michael. I actually, I was never that into him as a kid. Like I never thought much about him, but when he did the later records, I sort of discovered him when I was about 30 or something like much later. And then I realized what a total genius he was and songs like amazing. Some of my favorite songs ever, like that whole era, like his later pop music, but wham I'd forgotten was such a big thing as my sort of formative child years, you know, as a four-year-old, five-year-old. And I must've discovered Pepsi and Shirley through them because I think they were the backing singers of wham. And, um, I just loved them. I wanted to be like their best friend. And they wrote this song called Heartache. And I used to like sing it to myself all the time. So I made my mum, they thought I was crazy. I think I was like five years old. And they ma- I made my mum take me to Boots. And I was like, I have to have Heartache. And I, I got the physical vinyl with the paper sleeve with a picture of them on it, you know. And it, it was so magical and exciting just to like have this object in front of me and then to like put it on the record player and I was so young but it's like I don't know what possessed me to like want to have that physical object and to have the record and I would make up dance routines and like perform it for every single person like putting my hands on my heart for heartache heartache I loved it there was Um, she was one of my first crushes Shirley and, was she? Uh, oh god yeah and there's um <laughs> there's a, a performance of them on top of the pops and she's got this almost like a kind of sort of puffer rah-rah type skirt thing on and these and these, <laughs> and these higher sort of knee-length socks and i remember just thinking oh, oh my god she's the coolest thing ever so much so that fast forward to about 10 years ago and i was uh, obviously i don't know if you know that i run clubs across london and that's what i do mm-hmm. and uh and i had a very young roman kemp in his kind of screamo band at the time, come yeah. and play at my venue. And, uh, and Martin and Shirley turned up to watch. Oh, my God. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and obviously I'm texting, texting like, you know, people like, Martin Kemp's in my venue. Like, and uh, anyway, fast forward, we can't, we, they, they've gone to leave. And I've just said, and, and as they've walked out, I said, do you mind if I have a photo? <laughs> and Martin went, yeah, of course. And I went, thanks. And I gave him my phone and stood next to Shirley. <laughs> I don't know if he'd had that before. He was oh. like, all oh, right, okay. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> Cheers. Just want to phone with Shirley, not you. <laughs> uh, I just read a really interesting interview with Roman, Roman Kemp, the kid, all about the mental health and stuff and how he's really great. It's great that he talks so publicly about it all. He made a fantastic documentary during lockdown um, about it. Um, I think... Am I right that one of his very close friends took his own life? And uh, It might well be that. I didn't read that bit, but I think he was talking about like yeah. um, teen suicide and yeah. um, the way that men often don't talk to each other. And um, I thought it was brilliant that he does that. Yeah. I actually, uh, he's quite new to me. I only discovered him literally like a few days ago. Yeah. I don't even know why. I was reading something online. But he, I, really, I was really struck by it. I was like, God, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. He, he, going to help people um the other record i bought in um, boots by the way was madonna's cassette of true blue i mean and i remember i don't even think i knew what it was but i loved the album artwork so much that amazing photograph of her with her hair Brilliant. it's quite warhol actually that um i think it was a her brits photo maybe but i remember seeing that and being really drawn to the artwork i think i've always been drawn to like visuals of things um and that's why the 80s was so great with like pop music videos um and how crazy some of them became. But I loved that album, True Blue. It was like, I used to do routines to that as well. <laughs> I should but, find all the photos. <laughs> but there's so <laughs> many good tracks on that. 
like you know, like Papa Don't Preach is one of the best pop records ever made in my opinion. Ever made, yeah. Like, it's such a great record. It, open your hearts on True Blue as yeah. well, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah. my god. Yeah. yeah, what an absolute cracker of a single. And, and it was just her strength. There was such a sort of steeliness to her at that point in a good way. Do you know what absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. Like, like utter strength. And it really does sort of sum up the 80s in many ways. But I just love the artistic nature of it all. Because the front cover does look like a Warhol artwork. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's not some sort of cheesy pop album cover. And it lasts forever. Like when you look at it now, it's just amazing but she but even lived to tell right time, like, didn't she? Oh, what a song. <clears throat> yeah and like la isla bonita i mean that album was major but i agree papa don't preach and that t-shirt when she said italians do it better and <laughs> so yeah good. she did she did arrive at the right time but i i think she changed the time i mean she made the time you know but you talk about the visuals and the strength of, of madonna's look but you, you think when she was coming through in in you know in the early 80s in new york she was hanging out with like basquiat and that wasn't she she was like, yeah 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 and keith herring was yeah and keith friend. herring of course yeah yeah, yeah. like so. and i think it's really interesting like to think about that loss and i think that's where a lot of the steeliness probably came from and i mm. i totally understand that like you know she lost her mum um in her childhood and then i think that never leaves you when you lose like a family member in your formative years and then to lose all of your generation like all your mates i interviewed maripol um once years ago for a book about madonna um when i was studying at university i sort of got this job with lucy o'brien a music writer she did an amazing book called she bop mm. um, about the history of women in music and then she wrote this biography about Madonna. I think it was like, I think Madonna's team knew about it and, you know, it was okay that they were doing it. It wasn't like unauthorized in, in a way. Well, it was unauthorized, but, you know, they knew about it. Yeah. And um, they gave us access to like loads of different people. And I went and interviewed so many people for that book. And um, one of them was Maripol, who did all the styling for Like a Virgin and all the bangles and that kind of wedding dress era. And um, she said it was just like, you know, a year happened where everyone started getting AIDS and HIV. And then, whole blocks where all her friends had lived, all their friends had lived were just silent. And it was like, you know, parts of downtown New York or whatever, you'd walk through and it would just be like, everyone's died. And, you know, Madonna came out of the gay club scene in New York and it's like, all those people went, you know, yeah. that's going to like really deeply sort of affect you on an emotional level. And I think she just threw herself into her creativity and wanting to promote the message of safe sex and, all of these, you know, it was like a mission in a way. And I think that's probably why it was so, you know, extra powerful and meaningful. But she's another one. I do think when you look back, like, it's a really incredible contribution to culture, what, what she did. And it was sexy as well. You know, think of Justify My Love, that, that single cover. And like, even some of the later stuff where those Stephen Mizell photos and the sex book and all that, it actually, she was really incredibly sexy. And I mean, still is. She, I think she's really cool. I, I really like her. She's incredible. The, the Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cover to, I think it's Rescue Me, was this amazing photograph of her, and it was just like, just looked unbelievably sexy and 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 which was always the case and you know i'm 49 rob so i just got to experience madonna from day dot and and yeah. you know and just caught it at the right time where it was just felt you know you mentioned right at the very beginning about you know you like pop music but when you look at what pop there was throughout that period you mentioned madonna and you mentioned prince they're not just pop stars these are people that have changed that the cultural landscape, you know, in every possible, you know, way that you can with, with music and art and, and visuals and oh, j- j- yeah, just um, that. And, and you throw Michael Jackson in the mix there as well. And yeah, you know, are you ever going to see pop stars like that again? You know, yes, you've got your Adele's and any, things like I, that, but I kind of don't think it's possible anymore because I, I think, think so. social media has changed it so much mm. that you're never going to, cause that was one of the things Lady Gaga did a lot in her early career was try to like, not be seen apparently she was always like in underground car parks entering through the basement or entering through the kitchen do you know what i mean so that you don't see her walking on the street apart from when she would do those kind of catwalks Mm. out of her hotel wearing crazy outfits because she wanted to elevate herself to this mythical figure which is what everyone did in the 80s Mm. because in the 80s you you only got the information that they would put out Mm. it wasn't like i know you had paparazzi chasing people around and you'd see her running in a park or something but I don't know. I think that's what made the 80s was this, those stars were really elevated and made to be, uh, they were othered, weren't they, into yeah. sort of godly status, which these days, because of social media and how important that is to get things to, to relate to people, I just don't know if it's possible, but I guess someone could construct it. But when you look at bands like Self Esteem, my friend Rebecca, um, who's from Margate, like she's definitely, the, I think the reason I love her record so much is that she is looking at the songwriting of the 80s and taking it somewhere new with like her own political thing now you know like looking at Peter Gabriel looking at Sledgehammer or like Kate Bush or Madonna and that's the thing it's actually the songs it always comes back to the song and Madonna was an amazing songwriter Mm. whether you love her or hate her you cannot deny she wrote those top lines do you know what I mean she might not have produced the records but I think she did as well she was like a co-producer and it doesn't mean you have to like engineer every single last thing on Pro Tools like she has a vision and she yeah. can deliver it. And that's the hardest thing to do. And she's also smart with her producers. I, I literally interviewed William Orbit last week. And, mm. and, 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 you know, just knowing, even way back then, like we've, you know, at the beginning, right, who do I want to work with? Jellybean Benitez. Jellybean is the person to be working with right mm. now. He's mm, going to mm, be mm, able mm. to take me to, some, to a new audience, you know, to completely, you know, refresh what I'm doing and make me as current and as exciting. And she's done that, you know, with Lorraine Digital and, and, and William Orbit and consistently just like 
made sure she's on the cusp of everything. And I'll tell you what, you mentioned self-esteem there. I have been trying to get her on this podcast because <laughs> she, she went on Pips um, a couple of weeks ago. She went on ours. And, I just interviewed uh, her on Tuesday. <laughs> she was um, amazing you know on Pips. I, I was meant to be, Talk Art was meant to be the first interview she did for Prioritised Pleasure because back at the beginning, I had the album about six months before it came out. Right. And um, we didn't know if it was going to be a success. I thought it was going to be. The minute I heard it, I was like, this is going to reach people. Yeah. It just felt like Alanis Morissette all over again as well. It was like, this is like ripping my heart apart, the lyrics. And um, I kept saying to her, this is going to be huge. Like, let's do Talk Art. And then suddenly she got bigger and bigger and bigger by the week. And it was just like, she just sort of, we still talk all the time. And I see her a lot. She even came to my house on New Year's Eve. But, um, but it's like, I couldn't get the interview. And then she started doing like how to fail and, and table manners and just everything. And I was like, we're never going to do talk art now. <laughs> but weirdly, a year and a half later, I think it's almost better because now everyone knows who she is. Yeah. So we've just interviewed her and we got to the studio and the recording broke. And then we were meant to be filming it for a TV oh, thing God. we're working on. And that, that, that broke. It was like literally jinxed. And luckily she'd recorded on her... Um, on her thingy voice memos and Russell had two. So we still got the episode through voice memos. It's like everything was working against us. You'll you'll get her at some point. She's brilliant. Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. Let's go clubbing. I'd like to know the track that soundtrack your years clubbing, please, Rob. Well, I started clubbing properly a bit later in life because obviously my brother had died in a nightclub. So I didn't necessarily go. I did occasionally go, but I always sort of just didn't, I never drank alcohol, never did drugs. We just stand in a nightclub, not really connecting that much, but weirdly I've always loved electronic house music, dance music, all kinds of music. But later in life, when I was about 21, I started hanging out in the gay club scene in London a lot and places like um, Nag 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 and Ghetto and Electrogogo and um, The Cock, all these different nightclubs. So for me, it was like the Electro Clash era. So like Errol Olkin, a lot of the remixes he would do, Richard Norris, um, The Druids, the, I think that's what they were called. Um, and people on Mute's record label, like Client. I used to go to Client's uh, nightclub in uh, Notting Hill Arts Club. Um, and I used to love them. They were just so uh, inaccessible and dry and cool. Because that was Sarah kind of from like, Dubstar, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Sarah yeah. from Dubstar. And... Um, yeah, they they were super cool, and they they wore like very sort of like suits, and they were all like it was yeah. all like quite kind of post craft work. Uh, rock and roll, like, rock and roll, rock and roll is all I wanna. Yes, do. that's, that's right. And they were like client. Yeah. They they always used to like say their name in their songs and stuff. And uh, yeah, so I loved I loved all that kind of era, and then Goldfrap, of course. Um, I really liked Mute in that time, but really it was electro clash so it was people like fisher spooner like emerge uh peaches who's having a huge comeback at the moment mm. i'm thrilled about it we need more of peaches in the world um and some of peaches gigs as well and gonzalez her collaborator i used to go to all of his mental piano shows where he would like perform uh sort of like hip-hop versus piano it was really eccentric and brilliant like i, ha- I had him of... on here a little while ago did you he was absolutely wonderful like eccentric as fuck but oh just so interesting yeah his early albums mm. like had such a big impact on me i loved that whole era mm. but really it was like people like, i did a duet in my band tempo shark with princess julia so she used to dj a lot and she had a band called the most mm. and um we used to go to a cash point uh club with bishy and um matthew glamour and matthew was in minty with um or at least he took over from minty when lee bowery died yeah so i i was very much 
part of that scene. And I always felt like this weird pop kid and slightly, because I wasn't drinking or whatever, I never quite relaxed. So I was always this very intense sort of person within that. But people like Mark Moore from S Express, he really mentored me and like took me under his wing. He's one of the loveliest people you will ever meet, Mark Moore. And S Express. But it was very much like that, that kind of music. I'm fascinated by that scene. I was DJing then, but I didn't, I wasn't DJing there uh, around that scene. And I've had Matthew on the podcast. I've had Bishy on the podcast. Um, I love uh, her. And, ah, uh, oh, wonderful. And, and yeah, that whole scene, like, fascinated me. And it looked so exciting. And, and yeah, that, like, it, it, and it was a short-lived kind of period, that, 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 that Electra Clash thing. It, it, you know, the enemy got hold of it quite quickly and just overexposed it. And the, the, the billion-dollar record deal that Fisher Spooner got, or whatever it was, rumoured <laughs> yeah. to have been. It was so ridiculous. Uh, uh, and then it, 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 <laughs> I felt like that was an artwork in itself. <laughs> Absolutely. Everything, it's like everything Fisher Spooner did was so it's brilliant. It's actually just totally hilarious. Um, and then later, I started to go to Berlin, and went to Berghain and um, the Panorama Bar. And one of my best clubbing moments ever, I think it is the ultimate, was dancing in Panorama Bar, looking at like a giant Wolfgang Tillmans photograph on the wall. Um, and some of my friends didn't even get in. I think Russell might not have got in that night. It was really funny, like, because they don't let everyone in that, that club. And we, we got in somehow. And we were dancing all night and they kept playing this one record, which wasn't out yet. And all I could remember was forever dolphin love was one of the phrases. And it was this really sort of almost creepy voice, like forever dolphin love, you know, like quite weird, but it was the Errol Olkin remix of that song. And eventually I found out it was by Conan Moccasin, but it wasn't even out yet. It was like an early like LP of it or something and they were DJing it but they kept playing it throughout the evening so it would come like a recurring theme through the night so it'd be like quite techno-y music and then occasionally you'd hear that that kind of um chorus you know interpolated or something throughout the the the, the set but we were there we were only going to go till like we must have turned up at like one in the morning we didn't leave till something like 9 a.m or something or 8 a.m the next day and my friend michael fullerton who's a scottish um artist that i used to work with he was with us and he i think he missed his flight home <laughs> because we were just having such an amazing experience and i wasn't even taking drugs i wasn't drinking didn't do anything but the music in Berghain was so sort of transformative and just like lifted our souls i've never experienced it so whenever i hear conan moccasin even the kind of more acoustic rock version of it it's like i love that record i think it's so underrated that record as well amazing oh beautiful i'm gonna take you home for track six rob and i'm gonna ask you to tell me a favorite song from an artist from your home county please so when you say my home county do you mean like where i grew up as a kid yeah okay so Stuart price from Le Rhythm Digital, he grew up in Reading and I used to see him a lot around and I used to go to this place called Alley Cats, I think, which was like a Reading music venue mm. and I went to all his early gigs. I can't remember where else he played, but he definitely played at Reading Festival as well and I remember it being like, he used to have this kind of like dyed hair um, and he was, I was probably like 15 and he was probably like 19 or something, but I really looked up to him and I loved him from the, the minute he started that, that first album. Oh, um, so good. It's so good. And it was so much fun as well. And like, so I think he would be the one. And there was also a band, um, you know, like, Hey, you, what's that sound? Yeah. Like that, that whole era. I mean, amazing record and just the way that he used artwork as well because he had like a painting of himself on the sleeve mm. and 
he was also really attractive. He was like this really beautiful person as well. So I really, really looked up to him a lot in, in Berkshire. And then also there was a band called Gel, G-E-L, which was John Courtney and his brother. And they were in my school <laughs> and they got signed to some like indie record label and they used to put out like glitter vinyl, you know. So in my teens, Gel were this band that kind of made me want to make records and I, I could see it was possible because around school everyone would be like they got signed and I think he went on to be in an amazing kind of prog rock band um later on in the kind of early 2000s um that were also really successful they were called pure reason revolution oh yeah that? yeah yeah of course so pure reason revolution was the kind of later iteration of what gel so gel was like their teenage it was at a time when i used to hang out a lot with mira as well from disco pistol they were this crazy kind of like london punky pop band and um she was so charismatic and i hung out a lot with her through them as well but john was always quite shy but he was someone that sort of made me realize it was possible to do something in the world and actually materialize it so it's not just like you have a dream it's like it could actually sort of happen um was you confident yeah. at that point i was just angry <laughs> when i look back at pictures of myself i was confident yeah but not deep inside i mean i think i was super insecure and never really believed i could do it but i i think seeing having examples like john at school was really brilliant because you kind of know it is possible and i was he was really into like fanzines as well and like uh cassette tapes and just sort of mixtapes and things like that and i i loved that whole underground culture too because I, I, it's kind of you build your own fan base and there was definitely this community of you know teenagers we all used to hang out in in uh, chalk farm and camden and um and we became a little gang there was a whole group of us and we'd go to like music festivals together and um yeah so i think locally they were probably the ones whereas like now it's people like danae moore who lives in margate she's a singer-songwriter and um self-esteem and there's a whole gang of musicians in margate that i really look to not that i'm making music really anymore but um you know i i think it's been interesting in margate that it's not just about art there's like poets here actors here loads of musicians like um so yeah but back in berkshire they, they were definitely the people wonderful are you driven rob Am I driven? Yeah, I am. And I don't know why. I'm not driven in a kind of um, conventional way, I don't think. I just, I can't stop. And uh, I, I like uh, new ideas and, um, yeah, and just doing things. I like, like I, I'm not someone that can just sit around, really. I have too much um, energy. So, yeah. But I don't always know why. Like, when we set up Talk Art, we genuinely didn't think it was just for our mums. I know it sounds ridiculous, <laughs> but they wanted to learn more about art. And it was kind of for us, you know, like yeah. we wanted to hear artists talk. And I, I wasn't expecting it to like do as well as it did. And yeah. it wasn't like, I'm not driven in that sense. I don't really have ambition because I, I never really, I don't know, it wasn't planned. Mm. I just like to, um, like to keep busy, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I mean let's, let's just talk, you know, about, about uh, talk art. Because we, we first met when um, we, we covered the, I guess around the time he was launching the podcast for with, with um, a, a pop Bible magazine. And, oh yeah! And oh my god, the, it just exploded. The podcast mm. just went from zero to here like instantly. It was like I, I, was, I remember saying to people, "I was like, we, we, we've got to reach out to, to, to Rob and Russell and see if we can get them. Um, we, we, we'll write about them and we'll see if we can get them." And we, you, you, you ventured down to 
to the ACAR studios and we interviewed oh, yeah. you for the podcast. It's, wow, it's probably like, what, three years ago now, maybe? I think it was 2018, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, it's we, right near the beginning, well, 2019, yeah. I think the, the magazine was pretty new then as well. It was and, the first issue, uh, I think. Was it? It was, right, yeah, it was right near the beginning, yeah. Yeah, and... Yeah, to see what you have, have done with a podcast being absolutely You know, like, I remember sitting in the ACAST studios about a month before we did that podcast with you, and they we just signed up with ACAST, and I was like, I really want this show to be like as big as sort of Table Manners or as big as um, Scroobius Pip. And I remember like, so I obviously <laughs> did have some ambition for it, actually. I thought I didn't, but maybe I did actually. It's weird, isn't it? The thing is, Russell and I both just like throw ourselves into things mm. and we don't actually, while we're thrown in it, we don't really, you don't totally consciously know what it is you're doing. Yeah. It's just like a real sort of like work ethic. And then we, we ended up doing like, at one point in the lockdown, we were doing two episodes a week. And at the moment we're doing two a week and it's just like, it's too much really. Yeah. But I guess it's evergreen content in a sense. I just heard that phrase the other day, but it's like, in a way it doesn't matter because even if the people don't have time that week to listen to two episodes, they will eventually. And um, I don't know, but we just have this weird enthusiasm. We're just geeks and we cannot stop. Like every day he's like, who can we do now? Who can we do now? And it's got to the point where on Saturday, I'm going to Kite Festival to interview Ai Weiwei, who's obviously like one of the world's biggest artists. And Russell's in New York. And I thought they were going to cancel it because Russell had cancelled. And they're like, oh no, Rob can do it. So I'm doing it on my own, like in front of a live audience. And it's just a bit like, uh, sometimes I pinch myself and I'm like, how have I got to this place where Ai Weiwei is willing to talk to me? It's like, Isn't it it's great totally though when you meet someone like, you know, when you talk about your relationship with Russell, where, where, where Russell's like, who can we do next? Like, you know, that having that energy thrown back at you all the time as well. And if you've got that energy as well, then that's a force to be reckoned with. And I think, yeah, you know. He, he has it more than me because yeah. I'm a bit like. Uh, I'm more emotional and I'm quite soulful and kind of take things very personally. So uh, he just doesn't, he's really like chill because I think he's been acting since he was a kid. So he's just very like relaxed about everything. So we're quite a good combo. And I think even when we do the interviews, like I often go into like, you know, the deep shit and like, he just wants to find out like hilarious stuff as well. But he's also so well researched that he finds the weirdest artworks they made or, you know, the kind of really important moments and brings them up. And then the guest is always like, how the hell do you know that? Like he really, really delves deep, um, which is great. So yeah, I think we're a good, uh, good duo. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's your last track, Rob. And I'm going to ask you now, you can play Tastemaker now. And, uh, and I want you to tell me, please, a song that you think many people may not know that you would like them to hear, please. So we were talking about Björk and another person that really inspired me who I did end up doing a duet with when I was in Tempo Shark was Imogen Heap. And, um, I discovered her on, it was something like Music Week or something, and they had this CD on the front, and it had this song called Getting Scared, and it was before her first album had come out, and she'd just signed a deal with Almo Sounds, who I think also signed Garbage, actually. And um, I heard it, and again, that intro, it's like this electronic kind of intro, and it was Guy Sigsworth produced with Guy, um, who she ended up doing a band called Fru Fru with, who were, again, a huge influence on my life. And um, when I heard Getting Scared, I just... I couldn't get over how much I loved it. So I actually like faxed her. I found out who her manager was and I faxed her just, I wanted her to know because she wasn't famous. And I just thought I really want her to keep making music. I really want her to know that like I'm here in Maidenhead in Berkshire listening to this record. I was probably like 17 and um, she wrote back and then said, Oh, come to a gig. So I went up to London to um, like, Uh, Mornington Crescent or something to a little music venue there and she did a gig and she said come backstage and I got to meet her and then she kept inviting me to stuff and we kind of became friends over a period of time I haven't actually seen her now for about 10 years I bumped into her on the tube recently but we're not sort of that close anymore but I I still love her and I really 
I just think that Getting Scared record, if you haven't heard it, because most people didn't know that first album. It was called I Megaphone and it came out in 98. Um, Because I think Speak For Yourself, her second album and um, solo album, she did Fru Fru as well. They were kind of more mainstream in a way. Um, And then she ended up writing for like Taylor Swift and different people. But um, that was really important to me. And then that led as well at the same time to a band called Arcasia. Um, And it was a guy called Alex. He was the lead singer, um, Alexander Nilaire. And it was produced by Guy Sigsworth again. He was the uh, band member with Alex. And they made this record that was called Cradle. And nobody ever heard it. And I wish they had done because it's still to this day. I listen to it all the time. And there's a song called Maddening Shroud that Imogen was like a backing singer on or, you know, a guest vocalist on. And um, that era of music, like, it got they got totally overlooked and they really shouldn't have like i think alex to this day is such an amazing vocalist that i often tell musicians i know about that record um because i'm friends with danae moore who's made an album called modern dread um which i think was the best record of 2020 i interviewed her on talker actually and i said to her i was like you have to listen to arcasia because and she was like who the hell are they and i played it to her and she's like fucking hell this is great it was so futuristic and i think if it they're almost like way too ahead of their time um and there's loads of songs there's one called wired which is really like punky and then like i'm in love with love and sway and all those records it's actually now they finally have digitized it and it's on apple music and spotify and all the platforms now so if you look it up it's from 97 and it's called cradle and they were close with bjork as well because guy was producing bjork and writing songs with her bjork sorry i did meet her once and she said it's bjork like jerk and uh, I said to Derek from one, one little Indian records, I said, oh, does she hate me? And he was like, no, 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 she's just making it clear. <laughs> I was like, cool. <laughs> and we went to the ghetto together and danced all night with her and Layla Arab, who I love as well. Layla's music's amazing. Um, it's interesting yeah. that you mentioned um, Imogen Heap, because whenever people, if I ever sort of go, right, I'll check this out. There's a track by Imogen Heap. It wasn't by Imogen Heap. She, she was guest vocalist on it. Have you, I don't even know if you've heard it. It was quite early in the 90s, um, maybe 94, 95, called Blanket. Yes. And she sings yeah, yeah, yeah. with Urban Species. Yeah, yeah like, Urban Species, yeah. Fucking yeah. hell, what a They actually performed that, that on um, Jules Holland. That, that was the moment that I, I thought she was going to break at that point, mm. like quite mainstream. I think it was later. That was like, that's when I was about 18. That's like 98 or 99. Oh, was it a little bit later Yeah, than yeah, that? yeah. But that was um, uh, such a brilliant, brilliant record. Oh, and also amazing. she did a duet with Jeff Beck. And I went to Royal Albert Hall and saw her play live with him. And um, her, she did a lot of interesting collaborations. Mm. I used to describe her as like itinerant because she was like, she's almost like a traveler through music. Yeah. She can go to all different genres and it always makes sense because her voice is just so unique. Yeah. And I remember being at her studio when she wrote Speak for Yourself album and she'd just done Hide and Seek and it hadn't come out yet. And I remember hearing it and just being like, how did you do this? Like, because the, the nod to like Laurie Anderson, but somehow she'd actually made her own thing completely. Mm. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like a copy of Laurie Anderson. Yeah. It was just something very soulful, very authentic. And I remember her complete focus to make that Speak for Yourself album um, and wanting to kind of show people that she could produce as well, because there was this real kind of misogynistic thing in the art, in the music world, sorry, where um, people were like, if she'd worked with Guy Sigsworth, it's not his fault, of course, but like, you know, he must have been the producer. And it's a bit like, if you think of Alanis Morissette um, writing with like, Guy, uh, what's his name? Guy Ballard or something. Um, whatever his name was, the, the producer of her record. But like everyone assumes it's him. But like, actually, 
they're like the co-producer of these records. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And um, I think it was brilliant for her to kind of stand on her own two feet on her own and produce the whole record herself. And then for that to become the biggest record she made was just real testament to her talent. I mean, she's extraordinary. But again, Arcacia, for those who don't know, it's just A-C-A-C-I-A. Um, well, really, what really we do, Rob, is we put together a, a Spotify playlist to accompany the podcast. Uh, so we'll ensure that uh, Acacia are on there uh, amongst all the other songs that you, you've picked and, and that, that you've chosen, we've spoken about today. Alanis' producer is called Glenn Ballard. That was it, Glenn realized. Ballard, yeah. Glenn Ballard, <laughs> um, who wrote Man in the Mirror for Michael Jackson. He's Legend. not struggling with a mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, him. So if people want to keep up to speed with um, everything you're, you're up to, whether it be the gallery um, or talk art, where's the best place to keep up to speed with you, Rob? Uh, you can follow us at Talk Art. Um, and we interview all different kinds of people about art and why it means so much to people. Um, and then I'm at Robert Diamant on Instagram. And we also have at Carl Friedman Gallery, which is a free um, entry gallery in Margate. And we've got a show with Tracy Emin. And uh, this summer we're doing an amazing show with Lindsay Mendick. And hopefully maybe Self-Esteem is going to play live in the gallery. Because oh, wow. we often try and do... Danae Moore actually did a live music video in our gallery as well. We try and collaborate with all different kind of genres and different people and things. It's great. Wonderful. Rob, it's been an absolute pleasure talking records with you today. Thanks Wicked. for getting up early. And, no uh, worries. <laughs> After my day with Princess Anne. <laughs> we Sorry, mate. It's gone right we, down turn. Isn't it? You started with Princess Anne and you finished up with this elderly bloke from so Essex funny. just wittering on. <laughs> yeah. It was so funny. I was standing up all day yesterday. Tracy and I went to meet Princess Anne to be thanked because we raised money for Save the Children. And um, it was so funny. I really liked her. She was really cool. And she was really like super intelligent. She made this speech and I was actually like, really liked her speech. I, I really respect Princess Anne. I'm surprised because I've never really thought much about the royal family. Yeah. I, I just don't, you know, they just don't really come into my universe. Apart from Princess Diana, of course, who Russell and I adore. But um, yeah, I'm a big fan of Princess Anne now. <laughs> lovely, lovely. Rob, thank you so much, mate. See you soon. Bye. There you go. Oh, could have spoke to Rob for hours. I really could have. What a, what a lovely human being. Um, it's great when somebody can just go real deep dive on on music and knows, you know, knows, you know, all the nerdy little details. Because that's why I set this podcast up. I'm that guy, and uh, and it's lovely when uh, when you when you meet one of your own where you can have a real deep dive and and uh, and talk about scenes and music and and yeah. You know, from Madonna to self-esteem to ah, oh, all sorts, uh, and yeah, it's just been a, a delightful chat. That, and I'm, I hope you, even if you've got a fraction of the joy listening as I did recording that, then you've had a good time. Um, I'm back next time. In the meantime, go check out the back catalogue. Um, like I say, 400 episodes. Go check out the Patreon. Everything you need to know. Links to everything um, is at Off the Beat and TrackPodcast.com. I'm back next time. Stay safe. Love you. Bye-bye. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Keep me stew with him. Eat a monkey.